Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing and creating, please check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. And for the extended conversation with our guest today, uh, please be sure to check out the after show uh, on Patreon. That's patreon.com, Scripts and Scribes. And today on the show, we've got on a comic artist and writer who has worked for Marvel and DC on such titles as Wolverine, The Punisher, Batman, Justice League, Spider-Man, The New Wars, and a myriad of others. He's also the co-creator of the Eisner award-winning series, Transmetropolitan, which Wired Magazine named Graphic Novel of the Decade. And he is also the co-creator of The Boys on Amazon Prime, which he also serves as co-executive producer. He is Mr. Derek Robertson. Thanks for coming on, Derek. I appreciate you uh, joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Kevin. It's nice to be here. Uh, for those listeners out there, you, uh, I've actually known Derek. I've met Derek a long time ago when he did a signing at my store and I've remembered my comic book store, which I used to own. And, uh, so it's, it's great to see you again. It's been a long, long time. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that was in the crazy nineties <laughs> when everybody thought every number one comic was going to be, uh, a, a, uh, worth a fortune in the future and uh, there were 20 million copies printed and and, and yep. little poly bags so no one would yep. ever nobody open them would, right nobody read them they just thought right. they'd all be worth a million dollars right every person bought 20 copies and stuck them on the shelf somewhere in a box and they're worth if you're lucky the cover price right if you're lucky yeah <laughs> oftentimes you find them in quarter bins now yep i remember i'll never forget coming back from uh a Comic-Con and uh, another artist I was riding with, uh, we were in this bus and uh, he was sitting there with a stack of comics from like Image and then Wildstorm and all these other. And I'm like, why did you buy all that? Because it was the stuff that we, we find in quarter bins. He's like, they were selling it by the pound. <laughs> like, man, if, if anything, this was early 2000s. I mean, like, if anything really captured that era, I think that really says it all. They were selling it, these old, you know, comics from the 90s by the pound. Comics by the pound. That's fantastic. That's how, that's how, un, that's how unappealing they were. <laughs> Although what I do have to say, the comic books in the 90s was the era when they switched over from sort of that newsprint to the really yeah. heavy glossy. So they were probably pretty heavy. So, you know. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> but they were, there was a lot. The point is. Right. No, no, lot. I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so how are things? Things have been, uh, it's been a long time. Things have been interesting in the world. Let's just, oh, you could say that. Yeah. So how, you know, how are things? You live up in the Bay area, correct? I do. I live up in uh, Northern California. Yeah. Now. Um, so uh, how is, how has working been in sort of the pandemic been for you? It's really weird in that, um, it's, it's sort of been the same. It's just mm. that I don't have the release of going out and spending time with people or the fun of going to conventions like this should have been an amazing year for me because of the success of the boys television show mm -hmm. and all the things that they had already, they had planned, you know, at the end of the year of 2019 going into 2020, uh, I was going to be, you know, doing all kinds of promotional stuff and, uh, Comic-Con was going to be a big deal. And I was really excited about all that. And then it just kind of went poof. But, uh, you know, but as far as working goes, I've always worked at home. We, we, my kids were homeschooled, you know, they're, they're young adults now, but they were homeschooled when they were children. And, um, you know, so we didn't really change our lifestyles all that much. We just don't get to go anywhere. And I'm kind of sick of that. Right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. Right, right. Um, 
so let's start at the beginning. Uh, we always like to to sort of dive into the background of of the creators that come on the show. Uh, how did little Derek Robertson uh, become a comic book, comic book creator? How did you get interested in in creating comics? How did you become? How did you get your first job? How did you sort of work start working in the industry? That's a good question. Um, I fell in love with uh, I'd, I'd always loved comics as a little boy, uh, but it started with simple things like I love Disney animation. I loved my mom bought me this uh, art of the, the art of Walt Disney animation book when I was you know seven little kid, and uh, I loved it. I used to look at it all the time, and I had a fascination with that. And I loved Looney Tunes and Muppets, and you know, so my first love was that stuff. As I got a little older, um, I had always read comics, but it was like also Peanuts and uh, things like that and Archie and Richie Rich, because whatever my sister had gotten, I would always kind of like follow, pick her up, pick up her uh, comics that she would grow tired of. And I, I kind of fell in love with like Richie Rich and Archie and that stuff. But I never really understood that people made those. Those were just like worlds I was glimpsing into. So as I got older, um, the first time I, f I really discovered a comic, it was like issue 272 of The Flash. And I was at a pharmacy and uh, I just, something about the Jose Garcia Lopez cover really spoke to me. Like it just made me go, what is this? And I, you know, like I said, I'd seen comics, but this was the one where I, and then I opened it up and it was um, uh, late great Rich Buckler did the interiors. And it was seeing how he would use almost like a movie bridge uh, sequence of the flash running in the stream behind the lead figure that I got the sense of him moving really mm. fast. And that to me was like watching somebody do a magic trick that was really cool. Like, how did you do that? How do you make it look like he's moving? And the composition on the page was really good on the splash page. And it's not a very good story. It's not a particularly good issue, but it really spoke to me that when, you know, and I was a kid. So that at that point, I just started collecting the flash. And from there, um, as I got really into the flash, I was also just started to, um, put my focus on drawing my own characters and, and trying to like, like try to master what they're doing. I just wanted to understand like, how can my stuff look like that stuff? And, you know, I had already been, I'd always drawn like, but again, I drew stuff like Snoopy and Tweety Bird and, mm. you know, just things that a kid would be into. But this was sort of like, there's something about it, the drama and the anatomy and all that, like that made it feel important. And I wanted to sort of, I wanted my work to command that kind of importance, if that makes sense. Like sure. I wanted, I didn't want people to look at my stuff and giggle. I wanted people to look at my stuff and go, what's going on here? You know, the way that the flash made me sit up and pay attention at mm -hmm. that time in my life. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I just, and it just became a, you know, I've always drawn as a pastime, like the, especially then it, it's sort of like a way of me controlling my anxiety and my, boredom in, from having to sit still if I have to sit still for a long time I think I have a little bit of a like everybody else has probably become aware of like a little bit of an ADD problem mm. but if um, I'm able to put my concentration into things uh, like artwork uh, it, it, the time will just pass 
Otherwise I feel very much like I, I need to get up and be moving. Mm-hmm. So, and so how did you go from your first issue of the flash and to actually drawing professional? Like what was your first professional gig and how did you get it? Like what kind of portfolio did you have? How did you develop it? Um, well, coincidentally I had, um, I, I always kind of thought that my first gig would be something for Marvel and DC, and that's what I was aiming for. But uh, again, because I like to draw, I was I worked on a book. Uh, I started in summer school when I was 16, hmm. and I was sitting in the summer school, and I had thought up the name Space Beaver, and it wouldn't leave me alone. So I just kept drawing. I started drawing this story just to make it. It was for fun. It was like just to be a joke uh, based on everything I was kind of reading at the time. It was a regurgitation of everything that I was sort of enjoying. And I thought, you know, I didn't think it was ever going to be anything. I just was drawing a ballpoint pen on, you know, typing paper that I would uh, staple together. And I did, I had already done that when I was younger with a character, a superhero character I thought of, and I drew about 11 issues of that Mm. in the same way during, you know, between seventh grade and, and, uh, and high school. So um, it was just something I would do for fun. I, I, I just liked the process of putting comics together. And my dream was that, you know, someday I'd have a real comic book in my hand. And, and that was sort of, you know, that was sort of just my pastime in the way of, I don't know, manifesting what I really wanted. And, uh, but again, it was the thing where I would hope that my published work would be something important that people would pay attention to um because you know i wasn't very good then (laughs) (laughs) but uh apparently i was getting pretty good with uh because when uh i had a couple people look at space beaver uh it was during the black and white booms Mm. speaking times gone by and booms and bust in the industry um it was during the black and white boom and everybody was looking for the next ninja turtles because ninja turtles was a huge hit and everybody thought, well, all we need to do is just find the next black and white comic book uh, with funny animals in it, and we'll we'll be millionaires too. Uh, fun cut fact: to Space Beaver. Cut two doesn't work out that way. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, again, it was a weird time. It was the mid to late '80s, and it just doesn't happen. You know, you can't. If everybody could capture lightning in the bottle, or you know, find the magic recipe for success where everybody would be successful. So sure. it has a lot to do with timing and, you know, but ultimately my goal wasn't to be, you know, I, as much as I would have loved to have had, you know, uh, actually did have an animation deal in place for Space Beaver and it just never got off the ground. Um, but that, you know, if, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. But my ultimate goal was never to be, uh, a guy with a bunch of stuff on TV. I, I, I would love it, but you know, it wasn't really my uh, focus. My focus was on telling good stories and just creating, you know, fun stuff mm-hmm. and, and stuff that I could be proud of. And that's, that's really what it came down to. So when space beaver, it, it got me going to comic book conventions. I was already working on a portfolio that I thought was much more important than what I was doing with space beaver, but space beaver, I learned a lot because I was, I did 11 issues. I, I wrote the stories. I worked on the covers. I did everything I could to kind of make that book good. And I learned a lot about every facet of the industry in that time. 
Uh, I worked out at Diamond Distributors, mm. uh, unloading books on New Comics, the eve, the eve of New Comics Day. Uh, late at night on Tuesdays in the middle of the night, I'd be out there unloading books. They ended up hiring me and I would uh, sweep up the parking lot and organize stuff, you know, just, just menial labor. But I was around the business of comics and then also worked behind the the counter at a store for a little while. So I know a lot about, I, I learned a lot about how the industry ticks before I ever really became a published artist. So when you said you had finished 11 issues of Space Beaver, you had drawn it, written it, drawn it, or penciled it, inked it, and, and, but it was never actually in print, correct? No, no, it, it, no, it, it was being printed almost oh, as, okay. fast as, I, as, as fast as I could do them. Uh, oh, space, okay. Uh, space Beaver came out in 1986. I just didn't know anything about uh, understanding how publishing worked. Gotcha. So it was one of those things where I had <laughs> all of issue one, and then uh, we kind of realized, hey, maybe we should start working on issue two now that issue one is out. Not realizing I probably should be working on issue seven right. by the time issue one came out. But that, so we were always like, I was always working really hard. To kind so of, who ended up publishing Space Beaver? It was an independent guy, uh, Tibor Sardi. He owned his own store. And oh, again, cool. I think he thought he was going to get, uh, get in on that sweet, sweet black and white right. funny animal money that didn't materialize. Because uh, right. it was right, it was right before the bubble burst that he decided to put Space Beaver out. Gotcha. And um, but he, he, we independently published it, and he didn't know anything about you know comic book publishing any more than I did, and so it was sort of like a, a hard lesson for us both. Right. Um, you know, especially because the, but ironically, because the way the direct market was back then, Space Beaver number one sold. Uh, more than Transmetropolitan number one would sell, uh, you know. Wow. Ten years later. That's crazy. But, yeah. It <laughs> just goes to show you. Yeah. And so how did you go from Space Beaver to your days at at Marvel and DC and, and Malibu and all, and obviously beyond that image and everything with your creator own stuff. But uh, so how did you make the jump to the, you know, the big boys? Yeah, I, I was going to comic book conventions a lot, like I, because uh, what what was great about uh, working on a black and white comic back in the day was uh, that Space Beaver allowed me to um, go in and I was I was able to, like I said, learn about the industry. I, I got invited to comic book conventions and things like that, and um, as a result, I was able to. Uh, kind of talk to the professionals and I got treated like a professional even though I it was pretty specious to call me a professional at that age um, but I was grateful for it at the same time it was a good experience uh, but I would talk to people like I met Jim Lee and his you know when he mm. was just on Alpha Flight and you know and I talked to all my heroes at these shows like Art Adams and people like that and then just say hey you know and I'd show them my work and annoy them and <laughs> they would be gracious enough to sometimes give me feedback and other times just, you know, tell me to go away. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm like, I was younger than most of them because I was just getting going and I was still a teenager. So, um, but I always listened to the advice, even if it was, I didn't like what I heard, I, I would listen. And in, as a result, I ended up learning a lot about, you know, how it works and, um, what I had to do and where my work was lacking. And you also, in those days, very different than now. So I wouldn't really know what to tell 
uh, young people now about how to break in because in those days, uh, the editors from the comic, like, like the point of comic book conventions, surprise, surprise, was focused on comic books. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't actually focused on all the actors and, and, and the merchandise and the stuff that seems to fall under the banner of Comic-Con. You really would go there to dig through boxes of comics and meet comics creators. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the main point of them. And so as a result, like I was able to get access to talking to editors from Marvel and DC and actually get to know them a little bit. Um, but that, um, that time has kind of changed. So um, it's hard for me to put into words. It, it isn't like that now, but then I was able to kind of build a relationship uh, with certain editors who would remember me or ask me to keep sending them samples. And I would eventually, um, I got a job working on, uh, I worked for Innovation for a little while, which was a small company um, that was doing uh, color books uh, and the old, you know, really cheap, bad color. But, um, but it was still, my work was in color, which was exciting. And I was working on Child's Play 2. Uh, movie adaptation with Chucky and uh, I met ended up meeting Don Mancini the creator and um, and that kind of got me uh, some work that was better looking than Space Beaver and I was drawing humans and sequential stuff so I was able to take that and I ended up getting a job on Justice League Europe or a couple Justice League things because Andy Helfer the editor at the time liked my work gave me some Justice League work and in those days, this would be the early, early 90s, late 80s. In those days, if Marvel wanted you, then DC wanted you and vice versa. So it was sort of, they were kind of competing for young talent in those days. So from uh, working on that, I ended up getting um, a shot at Wolverine. Uh, I, I auditioned for Wolverine and my first Marvel comic ever was Wolverine, number 54, I think. And with Fabian Nicieza. And it was crazy to me back in the day because I, those were the two books I was hoping I'd eventually get to mm. <laughs> and I got to start on them. So it, it set an early precedent for me that I was like, well, I didn't really even know where to aim because I was so happy to finally be working on, you know, these characters I had dreamed of drawing all my life. I was already, I, I, you know, I said my first issue being Wolverine was like a dream come true. But, right. You thought you, you know, would get a Marvel team up issue with some C-level character that they were yeah. trying to hold on to the rights to, so they had to throw it in something to use it. Yeah, exactly. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And you ended up on an, uh, uh, you know, on an A-list title. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it ended up being a, um, I was surprised that that's the way things worked out for me in that regard. I, I thought that it would be a lot longer before I'd get that A-list title. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Yeah. So I was really happy that it, it worked out that way, but mm. I, it wasn't anything I could have predicted. Sure, sure. Um, now, you've had multiple series come from books that you've co-created. Uh, obviously, The Boys on yes. Amazon Prime, which is fantastic. The book's fantastic, too, but it's, it's, it's great when they both work. You oh, know totally. I mean? and, I, and I actually really like that about the the series is that I feel like you can enjoy them both independent of one another. Sure. Uh, and you also, uh, uh, co-created happy, right. Which is on sci-fi. Yes. Uh, so what I wanted to ask you is there's so many comic book properties being turned into hugely successful movies and TV series. 
a lot of screenwriters feel like if they adapt their screenplay or pilot into a comic book, it stands a better chance of getting made into a show or a film. What's really the truth and fiction behind that thought process? That That is a very, that is something of a misnomer, the idea that it's going to just come to you if you have a comic book. Um, the best example of that would be Cowboys versus Aliens, hmm. uh, which was a movie that they wrote and then they put out a comic book uh, after they had written the screenplay and then they tried to say, oh, this is based on the comic book because at the time that was the running theory. But it's just like the black and white boom. It's just like the 90s uh, number one superhero boom. This is another boom and it's going to fizzle mm. uh, eventually um, because you. a lot of the times what, what people are taking for granted is that, you know, they misread geek culture repeatedly in that uh, anybody who thinks that it's just a simple process of, oh, I'm just gonna make a comic book and then everything will look great. Um, they, they learn the hard way that it, there's more to it than that. And in that a lot of these comic books that become something special have had a long standing audience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that the, when that audience isn't there ahead of time, it becomes sort of obvious that you're trying to pretend that you have a comic book with a following that, that made a great adaptation. The only time I can ever think of a comic book that didn't have a big following, but ended up being huge would be men in black. Mm. Men in black was this little like Malibu comics published men in black as a black and white comic that you could find in quarter bins. And somebody picked up on the fact like, Hey, that's a great concept. And then made that amazing franchise out of it but that's more the exception than the rule i find right yeah i mean once in a while i think there are breakouts in from the comic world into film and television that may not have had a, a huge following obviously like the big marvel and dc properties things like that but maybe it's due to the fact that in comics you can try a lot of different things and you can break new ground that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in film and TV because the budgets are so big. So they're more hesitant unless you're Chris Nolan or somebody like that doing something right. unique and challenging visually that you can't necessarily, it's harder to put into a script and get someone to hire you or buy that and make that unless you're a big name. But if you're able to get something done in a comic that's unique visually and, and in that sense, um, maybe that, that, that translates. I mean, I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to say. Like, yeah. uh, I'd love to tell you there's a magic recipe for it, but I, there just isn't. Um, sure, sure. You know, the best thing I can say for anybody who wants to do this, the only thing that's ever worked for me was just putting my heart into the thing I was working on and giving it my all. Right. That's all I've ever had. I've never had any formal training. I never had anything other than, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm school of hard knocks. Like I got a, I got a degree from that. Yeah, great. For every success I can point to, I can show you many uh, failures and heartbreaks that along the way that I just had to get up and, and start over again. You know, right. every day, just get up and sit back at the board and hope for the better next time. That's really all it comes down to because, you know, there's never a point in your life when someone's going to show up with a magic hat and go, it's your turn. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work like that. Right. You, you have to be willing to, you know, you have to really ask yourself, do I really like sitting in this chair 
drawing comics all the time? Do I really want to spend my life, you know, in this chair at this desk and not seeing my friends as much as I'd like to and not going outside as much as I should? And, and because I have to make this so good that the world can't help but notice it. Right. That's sort of the, the thought process that uh, I, you know, for me, the answer is yes. I love the act of creating something good. And sometimes I can feel like, hey, that's special. Like I kind of knew with the boys when I read Gar's script, we had spent years kind of developing it together and working on other stuff for Marvel. But when we got to, when I was reading the boys, number one, I knew it was special. I could just feel it. I'm like, this is a great story. I know exactly what I'm going to do with it. And I, I'm like, was super excited to get started on drawing it. Mm. And, uh, and I was in it. That's, you know, and then here we are years later and there's a TV show and the, sh the show's a huge hit, mm -hmm. but very rarely did that feeling go. Yes. Like with Transmetropolitan, on the other hand, um, I just wanted to work with Warren Ellis and cause he's a great writer. And, and I told him from working on stupid stuff at uh, Malibu, uh, you know, like characters that were, he was able to make interesting, but you know, really weren't, um, I said, you know, you're this, if there's ever a chance to do a monthly book together, I'm, I'm there. And he was like, Oh yeah, I love your work too. And he, so when the opportunity came, we uh, co-created Transmetropolitan, but um, we struggled to keep that book going. Mm -hmm. uh, it was late all the time. Uh, I was barely ahead on issues because Warren was a person that would write in chunks. Like I'd get chunks of script rather than a whole script as it went on. And he started to get more popular and it's um it was a real interesting it was a very interesting time to uh be doing comics because the industry had sort of imploded this was the late 90s after the marvel had gone bankrupt mm -hmm. and um i really wasn't sure if there was going to be a future in comics at that point and started thinking about you know hey i'm still in my 20s i could do something else for a living and Maybe I should go to school and learn to be a doctor or something and uh, get a dental degree. <laughs> and uh, my wife talked me out of that, my then girlfriend. And, um, you know, but so when it came on, when it came to taking on Transmetropolitan, I did it just because I'm like, well, if I'm going to do something, I might as well create something new and have fun working with a writer I want to work with and see how far it goes, you know? And then six issues in, uh, they were canceling us because uh, the entire line it was under was imploding. Right. So I was losing, you know, like they were shutting down Helix, which was the original uh, publisher. And uh, I just was, it made me laugh that, um, again, you couldn't, the, the book was doing well enough that they decided to adopt it over to Vertigo and publish it through Vertigo for the rest of the run. But it was still like one of these things where what would go on to be, I think you quoted it, that it was the graphic novel of the decade, you know, like we didn't know that when we were working on it, we were like amazed it was still in print, you know, because every, the early issues, like nobody was buying them. They were, had a very small, but loyal following, but it was, you know, not selling nearly the numbers it was supposed to. And we were always kind of in danger of being canceled. Mm. You know, it was amazing that it, it it would become what it would be later, but uh, it was, uh, 
Yeah, hard to say. Yeah. It's it's you can't you can't predict the future. That's really which is ironic coming from me talking about transmetropolitan, but you really can't. <laughs> you just do what you can with it, you know. Right. Um, if going back to that, if a screenwriter had a screenplay or a pilot that they felt would really make a great adaptation into a comic book, I'm just throwing this out there because I know a lot of of writers out there would are probably interested in looking at doing something like that and sort of sort of yeah. demystify it. As we talked about, it's not necessarily an easier route. So if you think that it's going to jump you ahead having a comic book, then I think it's a misnomer. It's, it's, it's a mistake to think of it in those terms. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it reminds me very much too of how many times I see bad comic book art. Mm. Dumb, you can tell they hired, like they just went out and found a graphic designer right. or somebody who thinks they can work in a quote, comic book style right and and the results speak for themselves and you find that they are you know it really shows how bad a lot of them are sure so um i don't know that um you know that again that's one of those shortcuts where people there's a lot of people in the world that uh think comic book art is lowbrow art still and because unlike every other genre of storytelling you know, it's for whatever reason, comic books always seem to get uh, lumped in with the lowest common denominator, mm. right? whereas like film and television, like they have this elite set of creators that when you create an amazing film, you get the Academy Awards. If you create an amazing television show, you get the Emmy Awards. And with comic books, it's like people can't seem to forget the Batman 1966 TV show or the crappiest right. book that, you know, Image put out back in the day. Um, so, like, that's where everything gets equated to. Like, I, I watch Big Bang Theory. I'm, I'm finally getting through that. And it's like, you can see that the people that create that show don't really, um, like, they, they, they observe comic book fandom. They don't really understand it. Hmm. Because Sheldon's a guy who, like, you know, would never be as obsessed with the shows as he is with the comics themselves. And he'd be the one like going, Oh no, this is all wrong. They got the origin wrong. And you know, that he instead like, he just, Oh, I love it all. Like, and that's just not how comic book. Sure. Are. No, absolutely. You know, like they're the pickiest people out there. So if you try to like snowball them and say like, Oh no, it's based on this comic. It's like, who drew that comic? Who wrote right. that? Comic? When, when did that comic come out? Right. You know, and is the comic any good? Right. You know, so what's really nice now is that people are coming back and finding the boys and the boys is selling like it never sold uh, back in the day because of the show. But that's because we were creating a good comic. We weren't going like, hey, someday they'll make a show of this. Right. I mean, they optioned the movie back in 2008, but like that would end up being what we're seeing now. But we didn't, you know, we weren't creating the comic book with that in mind. We were always creating a comic book that we thought was good, mm -hmm. you know, that we believed in. So, maybe switching gears from writers, although it applies to them as well, screenwriters who want to make a comic book, but also comic book writers, aspiring comic book writers out there, because obviously if you're an artist, you have sort of more of a, a platform. You have a portfolio that you can put together on your own. Whereas if you're a writer, you need an art, unless you're an artist and a writer, which some are, but it's not as common as, as you think. There, I think there's probably a lot more <laughs> aspiring comic book writers than there are uh, comic book artists just because I think 
you know, it's, 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 there's different skill sets and. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I write and I draw. Sure. And, uh, but I often will defer writing anything because I prefer to collaborate with somebody who can write much better than I do. Sure. I know, I know the talent that it takes to create a great story and a great comic book. I'm capable of putting a comic book together. I've, I've been published uh, writing Spider-Man and uh, I wrote, uh, I'm currently writing, I wrote Conan the Barbarian and drew it and I'm currently working on a thing for DC that I can't go into details about because it's not announced but I'm writing and drawing one of their major characters uh for a story and you know so I can do it mm -hmm. I like it um and I try to do and but I actually try as hard to be as good a writer as I try to be as good an artist so I don't take for granted that my art's going to sell the story if the story sucks so I do I, I will sit and write a script and I will labor over the script as if it's a, the separate job that it is. You know, it, it doesn't, um, being the artist and the writer doesn't come easy uh, because I actually end up at war with myself when I sit down to actually draw the thing I, I've written. I often hate myself. Like, what was this writer thinking? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that leads me to a couple other questions. One being, you're obviously um, an upper level uh, artists, you work for the big publishers, so and you've been in the business a long time, so you may not be intimately familiar with the process now. But for young artists and young writers, how do they meet and and how do they sort of connect? And if they have ideas to make a comic book of their own, what is that process like? Um, that's that's hard to answer because that puts it under a giant umbrella that just doesn't apply to every circumstance. Mm. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier about music. Like, how did how do you get the Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison all in the same room so they can become the Beatles? Mm. How do you do that? Well, it just happens, you know. Um, I met a lot of people in in early on in my career that were just up and coming like I was, and some of us are still friends, and some of those people have gone on to great success, and some of those people don't work in comics anymore, and you know, it's, it's all a different path. I'm one of the few people that didn't go into some other form of, uh, you know, artwork where a lot of my friends that were monthly comic book guys like I was back in the 90s are now working in animation or video games. Like they don't actually even produce monthly comics anymore. Um, so that changed. Uh, the grass is greener in, you know, there, there are bigger pastures. And so um, that changed uh, for me in, in, in the time I've been working. I don't know if I'm, uh, maybe reiterate your question so I give you a, a more solid answer. It was more just if you were an aspiring comic book writer, you wanted to write comics or yeah. an artist, what is a good place for them to meet? Is it comic cons these days? There's so many cosplayers and so much Hollywood. Yeah, that's stuff. a good I mean, point. Well, I mean, we didn't have the internet. That's so, true. Um, like that was, that really changed everything. Like I almost wish I could be reincarnated to where I was born in uh, 98 rather than 68. I don't know how that would have changed things for me, but I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I had a passion for uh, all kinds of stuff. Like I used to make little uh, super eight movies and mm. I built props and um, I was really into puppets and, you know, all these different things that fascinated me, but I had no outlet. If I made a movie, I had no one I could show it to outside of who could get around my projector. And I took it to school one day and like showed the Superman movie that I made that I was super proud of uh, cause it was just fun. And, you know, and uh, 
five people thought it was cool and the rest of the class made fun of me. So, you know, but I was like, Hey, screw you. I made something, <laughs> you know, if you right. can't appreciate that I made something, you know, I don't care if you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that attitude would serve me well, <laughs> but it wouldn't, it wouldn't get me a whole lot of dates. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, here I am years later and something I co-created is on television. A couple mm-hmm. things I've co-created, have, well, many things I've co-created have ended up on television, but I don't always get the credit or the money for them. Um, I'm looking at you, Nightman. But, uh, <laughs> but that was, uh, but, th- but that's the thing. It's like, it wasn't about that for me. I was just saying that, hey, I wanted to do these things. But the internet uh, has created a platform for everybody to sort of, get their shot to get their stuff out there. How many, you know, if I had YouTube back in the day, I'd probably be a totally different creator. I mean, mm. uh, I, I respect the hell out of Kevin Smith's career because the guy just, you know, got his friends together and made clerks. And, you know, I'm sure that wasn't easy, but he got it done. And then, and as a result, he gets to, you know, he, he's now this uh, well-known director and creator of all kinds of things, but you know, I don't think anybody handed like yeah, nobody. I'm sure nobody showed up with the magic hat for no. young Kevin Smith in New Jersey and went, "Here's your turn." Right. You know, you just like, hey, I gotta, I want to make a movie with my friends, and and he did, did a great job and became Clerks. You know, so yeah. it's like you got to respect that, and I think that's like that. And in any creative endeavor, it's like if you want to make money, if that's really where your heart is, you know, go work on Wall Street. There's mm. plenty of money to be made. Uh, just like if that's where your heart is go find a way to make money but if you want to make something great that maybe will bring you money it starts with even if i never make a dime from this i'm gonna make it awesome and have a great time doing it. right as an artist who also writes you obviously write some of your own stuff like conan and uh, you also collaborate with other writers as an artist who also has your own ideas, because I see this a lot. A lot of writers will approach me and say, hey, how do I find an artist for my project? Oh, like, yeah, you were asking that. And how do you find it? Right. Like, and, I, well, I think the problem is, though, it's like it's their project. It's their ideas. And yeah. they don't want they're not looking to pay them. They're looking to collaborate. But it's not right. really a collaboration. They want someone to draw their work. Right. And, and to me, I think that's that's always the wrong way to approach it because an, an artist as a comic book artist, which means you're probably a comic book fan, which means you probably have a lot of your own ideas and mm-hmm. stories in your head. Instead of saying, Hey, would you draw this for me? I'm not going to pay you, but let's draw, let's make this comic book together, but it's really my ideas as opposed right. to let's come together and come up with something. If you think that I'm a good writer and I think you're a good artist, let's come together, bring both of our ideas together and come up with something new. Yeah. It's a lot harder on the artist. I mean, sure. It, it, takes so many more hours to create a comic book page i like to uh, often joke like you know write the word telephone and draw a telephone mm. and see what's done first right you know? and that's you know and that's just the reality of it but you know and in some cases like you you would always want the dream situation to be like eastman and laird when they created uh ninja turtles in their apartment and they were like starving and eating off a hot plate and couldn't pay the rent and right. you know now you look back and they've made this most and they were just laughing and giggling when they were coming up with the name and the original idea you know uh even i asked kevin when i saw him last i'm like because they were just rebooting uh a yet another ninja turtles sure. movie and i said like did you ever in a million years when you were back in your apartment imagine no 
because not in a million because we just we were just having fun and like it's still you know and that's why though but because fun is infectious if you're enjoying your work like you can tell when you're watching somebody uh you know give a concert if they're enjoying playing that music it comes through if they're just up there and getting through the hits you can tell that also and you know and it comes through in their performance and the way they relate to the audience i've ever saw a movie called crazy heart with jeff i have a long time ago oh it's so great and and that's a, a perfect example of a guy that you know he he loses his passion and and his and it takes a toll on his you know is his existence he's just you know going from bowling alley to bowling alley and playing his gigs and not even finishing songs because he wants to just go out back and you know drink more or throw up and you know it's and it's but there are people that are very passionate about his music and if you don't have the same respect for what you create then you can't expect other people to respect it. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't put your own passion and love into your work, then nobody's going to do that for you. That's really what it comes down to. So when it comes to finding a collaborator, or if it comes to being a, a, a writer who needs an artist, well, it's sort of assuming that any artist can do that job. Sure. Well, you can't. Like I was saying earlier about the Beatles, you know not even though in the later part of their careers they went off solo and did great stuff lennon and mccartney individually never created quite what they created when they worked together um and the same thing with ja- jack lee i'm sorry jack lee stanley and jack kirby is a great example of that kind of collaboration like what did stan really create after jack left marvel mm-hmm you know, whereas opposed to Jack went over to DC and created the new gods and dark side and all that stuff that he was writing and editing and drawing. So as a creative powerhouse together, they created the Hulk, they created X-Men, they created all these things that are massive franchises now, but on his own, Kirby went off and did a whole lot of new things that are still very popular today. So it just show you know that collaboration matters. It you know Stan couldn't just grab any artist and create another X Men. Just didn't mm-hmm. happen. Right, right. No, absolutely. Um, we have a ton of listener questions that I kind of wanted to run by you to see. Yeah. Um, the first one it, it, we got a lot of them on Discord. So if you're not on our Discord channel, you should check out the link and uh, check that out. Um, where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> that's a great question uh it, it comes all the time i don't know um i get them from everything uh sometimes i'll you know my toaster won't work and i'll get an idea from that you know it, it just <laughs> life life happens and, right. and I get, you know usually uh back in the day when i was working on transmetropolitan uh and i was much younger and you know just i was just living with my girlfriend and uh didn't have kids and then not a whole lot of responsibility uh other than making sure the rent was paid uh i would stay up all night watching late night tv and movies and uh work through the till dawn uh by myself in isolation with you know nothing more than the tv and occasionally my girlfriend snoozing next to me uh to get stuff finished mm-hmm. and so whatever was kind of bombarding me in the middle of the night uh, from the late night television, crazy, like stuff you would buy and, you know, like whatever weird movie 
rerun came on, stuff like that. It would all kind of get poured into what I was doing because Transmetropolitan was a world where anything goes. So any funny idea I thought to write on, scrawl something on a wall or, um, you know, throw something in the, on a building or make somebody in the background wearing, those ideas just kind of came to me from, from the experience of creating the book. Um, what makes me laugh is when I look back and I think about what I didn't see coming, like the iPhone, you know, uh, but what I did see coming, like this, this world where everything is in your face all the time, nonstop. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I had noticed was when I was, I, and I traveled a lot while I worked on Transmetropolitan. I lived in Italy for a year of it. Uh, and went around Europe, and then I went from San Francisco to New York and back. I uh, lived there in, in New York for a while when I was finishing up the book. So I was, but I noticed the th through thing on all cities uh, is that you'll see the same kind of stuff in wherever in the world you go. A city is a city is a city. Uh, there's cabs in almost every city of the world, but they're all they may look different. There's and one of the things that I always noticed was sidewalk graffiti. Um, and it would be about, this is pre-internet. So there was a way of like getting the word out if there was some injustice in the world. Uh, you'd see stuff written on sidewalks or uh, uh, spray painted onto, with, with stencils onto telephone poles, like, you know, justice for Juan. Uh, somebody I'd never heard of, somebody who I didn't know any idea about what their situation was. And, you know, while I would feel some sympathy, like, well, what happened to Juan, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I, there was no way to like, there was no Google to go, Hey, who is Juan? Right. You, know, you just had to know that this had happened and, you know, it would take a hell of a lot of work to actually find out what happened to Juan and why he deserves justice than it was just to kind of have that left an imprint in my brain. Like, you know, what happened to that guy? So I had a friend, uh, I have a friend named Steve Chung who, uh, would show up at comic cons and, he was such a, he's such a passionate fan. He would write a letter to like every single comic book uh, that DC was publishing and detailed with like what he loved about it. And, and so I, I bemusedly thought of him stuck in a room somewhere and nobody would let him out because he's had too much time to like read comic books and write letters. So I'm like, that's not fair. Someone should free Steve Chung, free Steve Chung. And so I started to write that on the uh, sidewalks in Transmetropolitan. And for years, people were like, who's Steve Chung? And I <laughs> tell the story, but it, but it left the same impression on the reader of Transmetropolitan that it left, that, that, that experience living in cities left on me where, yeah, who is Steve Chung? Why is he, why does he deserve to be free? You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's an example of where ideas would find their way into my work. Mm -hmm. um, so same, uh, person questioning uh, goes by scrawny strange uh, wanted to know uh, what's your writing process when you're writing a book like Conan uh, outlining no cards how do you go about writing a comic book oh that's a good question um, I personally um, I start with an outline I have an idea uh, you have to go through editors unless you're doing something independent but you go through editors and when it comes to working on somebody like Conan or you know, Spider-Man or something like that, it's going to have to be approved. And so I write an outline, I break down uh, a few paragraphs, what the issue or the story is going to be. In the case of uh, when I wrote Way to the Crown, it was a one shot. 
uh, didn't have to be in continuity. Conan usually isn't. Um, but it was just a standalone story. So I thought of the beginning, middle, and end. I knew how it would end. And then I wrote in, you know, basically a page how I imagined the the story breaking down. And in that case, I personally, I like to read the comic book in my imagination. Hmm. So I'm turning the pages in my mind. I'm seeing the panels. I'm imagining the, the manifested comic book. And then I write, I describe that process uh, as part of my pitch. And, you know, I sometimes uh, they want something else, but they like your idea. So in my, on my current project that I can't say who, um, they came back at me and they said, oh, can you put more villains in? And I was like, absolutely. You know, I was limiting myself to one character and, and one villain. They're like, oh, we'd like you to put more villains in. So I went and restructured the whole story and it became a different story, uh, but a better story. And, I, and it got longer. So ultimately it'd be like this 60 page thing that I'm doing when it was originally only going to be 30. Hmm. But they were like, yeah, no, do another 30 pages and add more characters. And so, you know, that, that's that's part of the process, too, like dealing with editors and, and accommodating requests and needs. And, you know, but right. mostly you start with a, an outline. You take a couple paragraphs to describe your story. And if it's an original thing, you want to describe your characters. Uh, if it's established thing, you probably don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um horror guy asks uh he says um how do rights writers outside of the u.s approach artists to draw a comic version of their script is there a best so we sort of covered part of this is there a yeah. best route and are there any notable pitfalls yeah well one you don't want to come in empty-handed uh mm. as much as you may be in love with your idea uh you you gotta you know most most people everybody needs to eat uh, so, you know, the idea that you've got the next big thing, it might feel that way to you, but the odds of it actually being the next big thing, pretty slim. And that doesn't mean, to be, I don't mean that to be discouraging. I just mean that to be realistic. Mm. And I've got great ideas that I haven't put out there yet, but are they great ideas? They are in my mind because I thought of them, <laughs> Right. But, but there's no guarantee. Like not every single thing I've done is you know, I've done a lot of work over the years. They're not all transmetropolitan. They're right. not all the boys. You know, it just, uh, you know, sometimes I think a book's going to be huge and nobody pays any attention to it. Uh, even though I think it's great stuff, you know, uh, right. ballistic comes to mind, like ballistic, you know, got great, incredible critic reviews, but never found its audience. People don't, most people don't even know it exists. So, um, but I think it's still one of the best things I've ever done. So it just, and Oliver from Image right now is like, mm. because of the timing on when that released, I'm working with the guy that wrote Rogue One. And he's my, my buddy, Gary wrote Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And yet that comic doesn't find its audience. So, you know, approach, but that's the way I got involved with Oliver was Gary Witta reaching out to me cold years ago and saying, hey, uh, I have this screenplay I'd like to adapt into a comic book would you be interested in working on it? And I was uh, super busy at the time. I just started on Wolverine. I was just wrapping up um, Transmetropolitan and I didn't have any room on my plate for another project. So the idea that I was going to take that on uh, was impossible. However, I uh, tried to get him in touch with another artist uh, that I thought might want to do it. And 
as things went on, like that didn't work out because apparently without me drawing it, there was not as much interest in the property. Um, I didn't know that at the time, just found that out later on as we moved on. But then we got, I, we, we remained friends uh, because he was just a cool guy. And it's kind of like the Eastman and Laird thing where these were just two people that liked to be together mm -hmm. and like creating together. So Gary and I ended up becoming just friends. And years later I was like, Hey, did you ever do anything with Oliver? And he's like, I know I just kind of fell apart. You know, we're just, it's kind of, you know, sitting there and I was like, Hey, well, let's do this. And now it's been way too many years and I've done far too few issues, but we're still friends and we're still creating together. Um, and we're, you know, I'm eventually going to finish it, but the thing was born from friendship. It wasn't born from, Hey, stranger, uh, take right. all of your life and dedicate it to my idea. And maybe you'll get something from it or maybe you'll have wasted many years uh, trying to get something done that never went anywhere. So right. it's your, you know, if you've got all nothing but time, um, then by all means, come and draw my thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most, most, most artists do not have nothing but time. Right. And none of their own ideas. Right. So like a super popular writer, and this is kind of what happened with Warren Ellis after we finished Transmetropolitan. Like I noticed he, he went on to do a whole lot more indie books and he would just get artists that I'd never heard of uh, very talented people, but people he would uh, seek out, but they'd want to work with him because he was Warren Ellis. Mm. You know? So it was like, that was a great opportunity for an aspiring artist to get their foot in the door. Because if you're drawing a, a Warren Ellis script, you know, you're going to get X number of readers looking at it immediately. And because it's got Warren Ellis's name on it. Well, I've had a lot of people approach me, especially since the success of the boys where they think my name on a comic book is going to be enough to sell it. Um, you know, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. I, but I never take those projects on simply because I'm looking for free money. I know that if it's some, I, if it's not something good, I'm not sure it's something I want to put my name on. So, uh, even if the writer is, is unknown, like in the case with Ballistic, Adam, Adam Egypt Mortimer, uh, he's gone on to direct some really cool horror movies and, uh, he's a good writer and director in and of his own right before we collaborated but he wasn't known in comics and neither at the time was black mask. So I think they were really hoping that my name and reputation was going to be enough for it to, you know, succeed. But I think it needed a little bit more than that to kind of get people's attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you may not know because you may be again, further up the totem pole, but if there was a comic book creator out there who had no artistic ability, which is actually one of the next question I have for you that someone left, if they don't, a writer out there doesn't have artistic ability, but they wanted to hire a writer rather than just say, let's come together and create something if they happen to mesh and there happen to be a good relationship, good friendship, good communication there. But somebody who's like, I have this great idea. I want it to be a comic book and I have the resources to be able to hire somebody. Do you know what that would cost approximately per page for a, a younger, newer artist out there? Obviously it can, can range all over the place. Yeah. But a professional level, newer artist with a few credits maybe i i, I can't i i don't know yeah. i mean it's unique it's like you know it, it depends on how established they are right um, i would say if you're trying to get somebody that works at marvel in dc and you have the resources find out what their marvel in dc rate is and if you can match it they'll probably say yes if it's a project if they've got the time and it's a project that they think is worthy sure um, but if you don't have that kind of income or resources which most people don't right um you know you're probably going to be better off 
uh, finding somebody on DeviantArt or putting out a, a cold call on Twitter and saying, any artist looking for work, I can pay. Mm -hmm. And then if you can afford them um, or they're willing to work for your rate. Some people are out there just like, hey, I just want to be, I mean, I was like that in my space fever years. I would draw anything for anybody just so I could, you know, eat. Right. No, no, I got you. <laughs> I wasn't making any money on Space Beaver. Right, right, so, right. So, you know, I was like, you know, and I, I needed an income. So I would go to conventions and 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 do uh, commissions and things like that for ridiculously cheap for the amount of work I'd end up putting in because I didn't have really much of an alternative. Mm -hmm. um, but at this stage of my life, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not quick to take on a project that doesn't pay me as well as a, a mainstream gig would unless there's really something in it for me. So in the case, like I just uh, debuted a book uh, today or yesterday called Space Bastards. Mm. And the writers uh, were, they have very lucrative day jobs, but they've had this passion project uh, for years and they really loved Transmetropolitan and my work on that. So they came in and uh, they could afford me. And I ended up, and also I liked their idea and they were saying, hey, look, we know you like to own a portion of your, uh, properties and, and you know we, we want to bring you in as a co-creator and you know you'll you'll retain rights and all and, and we'll pay you your rate and so they did and we did and we you know ended up being a 200 page project that was a lot of work but in you know it's debuting now and doing really well so it was worth it um humanoids is publishing it mm -hmm. uh, but after years they just they didn't have a publisher they just knew they just believed they'd get one they did kickstarters and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, so in that case, it, 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 sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I would just say the, the rule of thumb is nobody works for the same rate. Uh, not all, not all artists are equal. Um, and if you want good work, you get what you pay for. So if you really believe in your idea, be prepared to pay the artist and share the, the rights with them. Mm. Because if you have just a script, you don't have a finished comic book. If you have just a script, You've got a novel. Right. If you want a graphic novel, then you have to recognize that the person who provides the graphics is an equal member of that process. Right. Unlike film and television, where if you have a script, that's a sellable property. In comic books, that's not the case. Right. Well, you without also without artwork, you can't like image or any of these other publishers is not going to really look at a script. They're not interested in that. Not too often. Um, but, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I would just say that, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that with comic books, it's a it's very different than film and TV in that regard. You can, if you sell a script to Hollywood, there's a whole process of people that are there to read those scripts mm -hmm. and find the people to make that into something interesting and visual. If you don't, but with comic books, it's a little different. I mean, you might be able to sell your great Spider-Man story to Marvel as just a script and they'll find you an artist. Um, but usually that doesn't really work out that way. Um, my experience has been that if you're going to work on an indie thing, you know, the art's going to sell it in a lot of ways because one of the truisms of between art and writing, and I'm speaking as a humble writer, uh, when I say it's really easy right away when you look at somebody's artwork to tell if they're any good or not. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll, it, the, the proof's in the pudding from the second they open the portfolio, they'll know whether or not you're good because it's art. It immediately strikes you. It's not like that with writing. With writing, it's more of a, of a process. You have to kind of get into it and 
you know, you might be two pages into a thing before you realize it's terrible, you know, or, you know, might get to the end and then you go, oh my God, this is brilliant. But if you didn't enjoy it up to that ending, you might put it down before you know where the, the, the payoff is. Right. It's not like that with artwork. Artwork immediately tells you if it's good or not. Mm -hmm. um, AJ asked, and this is something that we sort of have covered, but I don't know if you've wanted to add anything to it, but AJS, uh, say someone has an idea or even a written script for a comic book series, but no artistic ability, meaning they can't draw. What should they do? You know, we talked about if you can make a connection with an artist organically at a convention or something, is if you can afford it, I guess you can also try to find an artist you like and feel their sensibility might fit. Um, is there anything else that you would suggest that somebody who is in that boat do when they're um, looking for an artist? Yeah, I would just say that the, the best route to getting your comic made into something is, again, if you can self-finance it, be prepared to pay for good art. Otherwise, you're not going to get good art. If you can't afford to self-finance it, then be prepared to share the rights and find somebody that wants to equal, who equally believes in your idea. Mm. Somebody who thinks your idea is as great as you do. Because otherwise, they're, you know, if they're just doing it for the money, they're not going to have a personal investment in it. And that's going to come through in the art that you get. Uh, and the timeliness no, of it, I'm sure. It has, yeah. I mean, there's, there's just no, there's no one right answer to that question, unfortunately. Sure, it's, no, it's, no. It's, it, there's a little bit of, you know, uh, luck and magic involved that mm -hmm. just has to happen on its own. And the only way I can say is to get there is just, you got to believe in your idea and, chase your dream that's all i can say i mean right. if there's places to meet artists yeah once upon a time before uh we were all in covid um you could go to comic cons and go to artist alley and find an artist whose work you like and you know sometimes those guys you can commission them at a con to draw your character for you and they'll happily do that so i mean i used to do stuff like that usually it was people's D, &D characters but you know um that was still the, the, the process was the same. Like people would come up with their idea and their character and go, Oh, can you draw my guy? And I would say, sure. And they describe him to me or they'd have a description written and, or they'd have a sketchbook full of all these different artists drawing this guy's character. Um, you know, but that's artist, artist alley is a, is a good place to start uh, because there's most people that are sitting in artist alley are looking for a, a job and want to work on it. And, you know, uh, and could use the work sure. so i would say you know but be prepared to pay them for their time and if you can't pay them for their time they have something else to offer besides your fantastic idea that you know may or may not go somewhere right, right. because that artist is going to be dedicating a hell of a lot of time to making your thing a reality right and if you can't pay them and or share in any sort of financial which you should be able to do financial future financial rewards if there are any, which, you know, as we know that often doesn't happen, but the less invested they are in it, the more likely they are to drop your book at the drop of a hat when something does come along that's paying them. Totally. Yes. You know, totally. Yes. So, absolutely. You know, instead, that's of, instead of getting your pages in a timely fashion, you may be waiting three years to get your first issue done when they're doing it in their spare time. That's unfortunately the story yeah. of all of them. Yeah. You know, it's it's an indie book, and I can't afford to just draw that book. I would love to, but it's just not the way the world, the sure. world works out. So even at my level of you know, I'm going to take um, you know a DC gig 
or or a good paying job uh so i can get back to working on an indie job right but in the in the meantime you know kids gotta eat yep um gustavo asked uh how was the process working on the boys with amazon prime as a comic creator uh it was it, i'm not really hands-on with the show but they did uh they have reached out to me in a number of ways so i can be involved which i really appreciate so they um the work i'm doing for them ends up being um like i've created artwork for the show that you'll, mm. that's very visible in both seasons one and two uh episode three of season two in particular when that movie guy is is given the big uh dawn of the seven movie pitch to the seven he's showing storyboards and talking about what's happening and how the movie's going to be they hired me to draw those storyboards. So all those storyboards are mine and they got feature screen time. So, and I had actually kind of reached out at the beginning of the show, like, Hey, can I storyboard for it? And they were like, yeah, well, well let's think on it. And I thought they didn't want me. And they ended up <laughs> creating, creating a, a, like basically a way of putting my artwork as a feature thing in one of the movies, you know, which was really flattering. And I was like, Oh, they wanted to give me a good job. Like, you know, not that storyboarding is a bad job, but sure. it was sort of like that. They wanted me more, in a more focused way uh, for something like that. So um, in that regard, I've been involved and I've really enjoyed the process. Um, but in the day-to-day uh, -day stuff, like I don't go in the writer's room and tell them what to do with the, with the scripts or anything. That's a whole other beast. And I, I'm just happy when I get to go to set and I met a lot of the cast and they treat me really well when I'm there on set. Like I get a lot of people that come up and thank me for, you know, co-create in the comic and things like that. So it's, it's, I, I'm, it's a warm and friendly place for me. Uh, and I love working with them, like creating artwork wherever I can. There's a lot of work you'll see in the backgrounds on the, at the seven tower, uh, for example, and that's work they hired me to do to decorate the set, things like that. The very first image you see of the season one, episode one is this comic book cover of the seven and it kind of disappears into like, a montage that becomes bot, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that's the very, very first thing you see. And that's uh, a piece they hired me to create for that moment. Cool. So I'm involved in that. Like they've wanted my input wherever I can offer it. Mm -hmm. um, Gustavo also asked, like, how it, are, are scripts translated, meaning I'm sure adapted from comics to to television, to, you know, scripts? Um, well, they, they, they tend to create something original uh, based on what their overall vision for a show will be. Now, uh, the job of a television show is different than the job of just adapting a comic book. It has to work in a completely different format. Uh, so the storytelling and the timing and everything is, is unique to that uh, experience and that, that creation. So you know, you're, you're filling an hour of time as opposed to 22 pages of, of artwork. Um, you're not restricted by how much dialogue can fit in a scene when you're working in film because people can just talk and you just film the scene as long as it needs to go. In comic books, you know, if someone does a long soliloquy, you might be taking up an entire page with no room for the artwork. Right, right. So it's a very different process in that regard. I think what worked very well about the boys is that they did uh they love the comics they've been very vocal with me about how much they love the comics seth rogan and eric kripke in particular have gone out of their way to tell me 
what fans they are of the comic books. But um, their job is to make a television show and they've got to think about all, you know, they have to think about how the world is going to be perceived when everything is there for you. It's a, like, it's a reality. Whereas in a comic book, a lot of people take for granted all the stuff that happens in their imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, like gutters in a, between panels, that's a time jump that you don't see that's seamless when you're watching it on television. Uh, in, you know, whatever you think Butcher and Huey and those characters sound like, that's all in your brain. Like you, we didn't, you know, until the television show, we didn't, we don't know what their voices actually sound like. Uh, that's just something you imagine. Sound effects are imagined, but they take up a lot of space on the page if you draw one out, you know, splash, mm-hmm. you know, that takes up an area of real estate on a comic book page, but you just hear it when you're watching a television show or you're hearing a movie, you know, you just take that for granted. And, and it feels like you're having that movie experience when you work, when you're reading a good comic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you feel like you're having a cinematic experience, but that's all going on in your brain. Right. And comics also, like, you have thought bubbles and things like that. And unless right. you do a voiceover, which is different in, right. a, a, in a, a television show or a film, you know, so they're very different mediums. But Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good example of, like, saying, oh, hey, you know, how a thought bubble works and how a voiceover might mm-hmm. sound, you know, it takes me back to the uh, original Blade Runner. Oh, uh, yeah and how they went in and they had Harrison Ford narrating it and uh, Ridley Scott didn't really like that. He didn't want that. It was something the producers insisted on. And so, you know, years later, he um, he would recut that thing uh, three or four times to get the version he wanted that didn't have that um, uh, voice over there, but that would would have been like a thought bubble in a comic book. Right, right. Uh, and lastly, I, I'm sure you can't say, or it may, they may not even, you may not even know at this point, uh, Gustavo lastly asks, uh, what can you tell us about season three? So I, I, I sort of... It's going to be on Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What else do you want, right? Uh, okay. Um, and then now we're at the part of the show where we just ask quickly what you are reading, watching, playing, or listening to. What are some of the favorite things that you've read recently, watched, played game wise or listen to music podcast anything I'm, really, I'm kind of boring these days because i'm just trapped inside so honestly uh you know this kind of goes back to where do you get your ideas i'm sort of like on an unending loop of uh, cable news hmm. that cause I can play in the background while i'm drawing um i don't have time for video games as much as i love them mm-hmm. because they take up all my time i was talking to Kevin before we got recording, but I was, we were talking about the guitar. Like I like to play the guitar instead of playing video games because it's something that if I level up on, somebody's going to care about that as opposed to how well I'm doing on Mario Kart, (laughs) Uh, you know, but um, so I I love video games, but I love them enough to know that they're my crack. Mm. So I don't, but I, the last great game I played that said my, both my kids game and they're much better at it and they have great taste in stuff so the uh last uh really great game i've played and i still want to finish is detroit become human oh yeah uh because i want that that actually is sort of the transmetropolitan game i've Mm. always imagined uh would get made and that i would love because you can explore worlds and then kind of fill in the story and i feel like i'm watching a movie almost more than i'm playing a game but it makes the gameplay so much fun like if, if anybody that's played the game knows like you're chasing that you know you're you're pressing the buttons to get that kid out of there and you're trying not to let her 
get captured and that that's really fun because it's like I'm invested in the characters and the story and at the same time I'm you know I'm controlling it and then the fact that Clancy Brown and Lance Hendrickson uh, are in it and look like themselves is pretty damn cool too. right no it is cool um anything else you're reading any comics any books um, I read comics like way after the fact so because yeah. um I I, I I don't have a comic book store near me and I'm always like busy on something sure, so sure um I, the most the comic books i've read the most are the ones i'm drawing right uh, but uh the last thing i i, I love umbrella academy hmm. um i got around to reading those uh before the show and then during the show uh, umbrella academy i think is great um i read in a book called daybreak which i think is fantastic my my kid turned me on to that and um but i'm, I'm not really keeping up with mainstream stuff like i said i don't have a comic book store in my area so I end up getting comic books after the fact if I do a signing or something like oh, that. Right. Somebody at a store will go, oh my God, have you not read this? And I'm like, no, but then I'll read it and love it. But um, no, currently I, I mostly, I read, I read what's going on in the world. I read news. Yeah. I know it's so boring, but well, I read, it's not I, boring these I, days, I read biographies but... and things like that. I'm reading book books, you know? Right. Uh, gotcha. Um, Thanks for coming Sorry, on. The show. Very, I'm sure that's not a very <laughs> exciting answer. Well, it's a real answer. Uh, it's the truth. It's yeah. just the, but it's like also, but I find that for, you know, it, to, to bring that into context though, I do find that when I read biographies and things like that about, or history, like those are where the best ideas come from. Mm -hmm. If you're reading just comics, you're, you're going to be just ultimately reproducing somebody else's idea who probably didn't read a comic to get their idea. Right. So right. I know that, like, for example, I know that uh, Garth Ennis was a huge James Elroy fan. Oh. And, and that's kind of what inspired the boys. Like he, Hollywood casting couches of the 30s and, you know, a little bit of that um, uh, Hollywood confidential, you know, thing was like added into what he liked about the boys. So James Elroy was a big influence on him more than the Justice League was. Sure. For it to be, for example. Right. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's always great. And not a lot of TV writers rooms, they'll, they'll bring in people who are playwrights or people who, you know, come from different areas yeah. because they bring a different perspective and in, in, into, into that room. So the fact that, yeah, when you work on a medium, if you draw from other mediums, a great literature or film or whatever it happens to be, I think it definitely broadens uh, what your, your final product is. I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, so you can stick around for a few more questions for the after show. Sure. Great. Um, but thank you for coming on to the podcast and chatting with us today, Derek. No, it's fun. Appreciate it. Um, and the people can find you. I know you have a website, DerekRobertson.com, and that's Derek D A R I C K Robertson.com. And your Twitter is at Derek R. Yeah. I noticed there's a bunch of other Derek Roberts. I don't know if they're your old accounts because there's nothing on them, but there's a bunch of random Derek Robertson accounts. I had one other one that I tried to get going before I understood how to use Twitter. Right. I was locked out of it. And then so I created an account briefly. I thought I deleted that account since, but um, I found a Derek at Derek. And then there was another one, I think at Derek Robertson. There was two of them. There's oh, emails. No, no, no. At the Twitter accounts. That's weird. Yeah. Um, None of them really, they, I don't think they've tweeted and they're not very active. They have almost nothing there. So they're not. Uh, I, I, just, I, I blame the Russians. I don't yeah, know. Possibly. But anyway, <laughs> you are at Derek. I'm at R. Derek. R. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tend to get political because like I said, all I do all day is listen, <laughs> listen and read the news and 
roll my eyes, right. but um, I have to roll my eyes publicly. So I do so on Twitter. Um, if you, uh, so, you know, don't, don't come to argue. Just, <laughs> I don't argue with anybody. I just, but I do, uh, I am vocal. Fair enough. Um, and uh, if you have questions about the craft or business of writing or comics or film, TV, any of those kind of questions, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com. Send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you again, Derek, and uh, join us over on Patreon for the after show. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys. 